0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Lines are open, 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. Thought I'd throw that number out there. I don't know if we have anything to talk about. I don't know. Appears to be some uh, some more uh, precautionary measures being taken due to coronavirus concerns. You know, I'll admit, I, I go back and forth between how serious do I take this and, you know, how much of it is, is overblown hype. And on the one hand, I get it, you know, better safe than sorry. But I, I have to say, when the announcement came out earlier today from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that they a semi-annual general conference. And for those who aren't members of the Mormon Church, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a worldwide conference uh, broadcast from the Conference Center in Salt Lake City, which holds something like 30,000 people. It's a massive gathering place. And they just announced this morning, hey, uh, apparently, uh, as global concerns over the, over the spread of COVID-19 continue to grow, they uh, have decided that instead they're just going to broadcast the conference without an audience there in the conference center. Now, look, I don't like crowds. That's I'm, I am i don't know if I'm an introvert, but I'm just not a person who loves to be in big crowds. I never have felt comfortable in crowds, so this is kind of a blessing for me. It's like, oh, good, well, you know, I won't be fighting traffic or, you know, having to worm my way through the crowd. But I have to admit, the pucker factor increased just a bit as I heard that news because it was like, Wow. Dang. And then and they went further to say that uh, various other meetings, including uh, uh, some of their more regional meetings like stake conferences and so forth, may also be uh, postponed or at least held primarily, you know, delivered digitally via broadcast instead of having people get together in those areas that are most being affected by coronavirus. So I'm not sounding the panic button here. I'm not pounding it and sounding the alarm just yet but i have to say that's that's a pretty significant thing and for my listeners in and around the salt lake area if you've ever been around at conference time or ever been around downtown salt lake city around conference time it's a huge deal thousands and thousands of people you know show up there and even if they can't get into the conference center they'll sit out there on the grounds or they'll go around temple square and just just hang out but it's it's a very very busy time so yeah my my days of not taking coronavirus serious are, are definitely coming to a middle, but at the same time, I I don't see any point in scaring ourselves. There was a, an excellent article published. I'll have to see if I can find it. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes for for this hour of the show. But um, essentially, this this is what it described was there is a curve that they want to try to flatten out, and that is the the number of cases that they're dealing with. If they can spread that number of cases out over a period of time to, to prevent uh, emergency you know, medical services like intensive care, emergency rooms, hospital beds, and so forth from becoming swamped, that's actually a good thing. And China apparently did a pretty good job of this once they, they locked everything down. But see, there's the key. I mean, they locked it down hard. So... You know, I, I'm i not thinking that this is the end of the world by any means, but I'm thinking the adjustment that may be coming our way may be a little bigger than we expected. The uh, repercussions for what this is going to, to mean for the economy have yet to be seen. And yet there's there's something that I wanted to share with you. This is a commentary from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's some common sense that I hope brings a little semblance of... Uh, rationality back into the discussion. Because, uh, you know, if you thought people were doing runs on the grocery store and, you know, stocking up on toilet paper and everything now, I think you're going to see this intensify. I don't want to see it, but it would not surprise me if you didn't see lines. I'm feeling bad for the folks over at Macy's. I mean, I just got the ad in the mail yesterday. Oh, by the way, our case lot sale continues. And it's like, wow, you guys are going to have people lined up out the door. Wanting to uh, to stock up on food items and, and whatever else they need, which is a good idea. The problem is when everybody does it at once, they, uh, they, can have a, they can have a problem. And that, that feeds the panic. When you see empty shelves, oh my gosh, I've got to get anything, anything I can find. So Jeff Tucker makes the, the case that in a disease panic, the free market is actually your friend. Now here's how he makes the case. He says, that hand sanitizer you're using, where did you get it? a local store or an online shop and who made it private enterprise operating based on profit and loss within a market economy that mask you're keeping just in case same thing it came from private investment brought to you by international trade it cost a buck or two but it it might save your life those latex gloves an amazing innovation with a remarkable history the first ones were invented at the height of the hated gilded age in 1830 1883 rather a result of the booming oil industry which led to countless derivative products. Disposable versions are wonderfully sanitary, but they've only been available since 1964 as innovated by the private company Ansell, founded by Eric Ansell in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you, international trade. That food you're stockpiling, who's selling you that? It's the local grocery or perhaps a big box discount store that allows you to purchase vast quantities at a discount. The bottled water you now have? Thank the merchant who eschews uh, municipal water while knowing that people expect better. The equipment at the hospital that will keep you breathing and medicated is manufactured by private enterprise. He says, I can't think of a single exception. You don't seriously think that the Centers for Disease Control makes heart monitors and respirators, do you? Oh, and the information you're getting on the latest virus updates, what is delivering it to you? Most likely, the World Wide Web, made possible by private servers given to you on privately owned fiber optic cables flowing to your privately made and distributed computer or smartphone, which today is more capable than the supercomputers of 20 years ago, thanks to the driving force of the market to innovate in the service of the common person. Or maybe you're watching a 72-inch television that you picked up for $1,000 at Costco to deliver a home viewing experience not even the richest person would have enjoyed 15 years ago. And that house right right now where you've decided to quarantine yourself? Who built that? Who made the materials possible? Jeff Tucker says you owe it all to private business operating within a market framework. Real estate developers who face a daily test of their wherewithal by facing brutal competition. The home is insured by private companies who bear all the risk of disaster so that you don't have to. Who is innovating the home testing kits that are now reaching people in areas most affected? It's the Gates Foundation, as funded by the hated billionaire capitalist who turned his wealth into global philanthropy to fight diseases just like this one. Here is private enterprise at work. Jeff Tucker says the truth is that the market loves you right now. More in the midst of a disease panic than ever before. It would love you more, or even more, if companies were not being browbeat by government into curbing sales of essential items. Let the prices of sanitizer and masks rise and you draw more into production and distribution. Throttle the market and you reduce supply. The market would have loved you more had the Centers for Disease Control not failed to authorize private companies to test for the virus. It was only after the aggressive protests of the governor of New York that the CDC gave in and let people do what they wanted to do. And what is the mighty contribution of government these days? To order quarantines, but not to tell you whether you can step outside or how you will get groceries or how long it will last, who you can invite in, and when it will all end. He says, don't call the authorities or don't try to. They have bigger and better things to worry about than your sorry plight that's causing you sleepless nights and endless worry. Thank goodness for digital technology that allows you to communicate with friends and family. And he asks, how many times have you heard something of the following? Well, I take advantage of these low-priced fares and cheap hotels, but I'm afraid of getting quarantined. Think of what this statement means. It means that people are more afraid of their own governments than they are of COVID-19. How is that making a contribution to getting through this sad stage of history? And so Jeff Tucker says, given all of this... It appears to me that the bitter fingered pundits type up articles trashing the market as nothing but a Trumpish plot to pillage you, whereas government is saving you. He says, I waited for days and weeks for someone to finally say what so many wanted to say, which is there are no libertarians in an epidemic. On the contrary, he says, it is human liberty operating within a market framework that saves us in times like this. In a disease panic, we're learning. People lose their minds, they stop thinking clearly about things that matter. They also reach out to authority to save them. All of this is expected. And it's very sad. Even sadder is how the unscrupulous power mongers among us use such times to enhance the power of the state over our lives and then claim it's for our own good. Jeff Tucker says we should expect more of our public intellectuals than to use this tragedy to trash market-based institutions that are working 24-7 to provide you and your loved ones what you need to survive this mess. When it's the difference between health and sickness, life and death, government is the last institution you want to trust. I'm sorry, but I think he's 100% right. So right, in fact, that I will share this in the show notes when I post today's show up for a podcast shortly after we finish. we got a lot more ahead of us. If you want to join the conversation, 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. All right, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. We do have a lot to talk about, and I would love to hear from you, even if you just want to vent. I'm here and I'm listening. Let's let's waste no time. Let's get right to the telephone. Hi there. Welcome to Loving Liberty.
1: Yeah, Brian, Sam calling. How in the world are you?
0: You know, surprisingly, I'm I'm well. <laughs> Knock Good on deal. wood. How about you? Yeah.
1: Oh, not too bad. As I told somebody the other day, I said the world's still sitting on its axis as far as I know, and I haven't fallen over yet. So, <laughs> All right.
0: Well, see, now that's looking on the bright side.
1: Yeah, that's right. So uh, anyway, no, I'm just going to comment because, you know, I, I like you and everybody else, I've been hearing so much on this coronavirus. This whole thing isn't going over real well with people I talk to out here. Um, my wife, Trish, calls it a scamdemic, and... Uh, I think it fits it pretty well. I mean, not to say there isn't something out there, but it's funny. They're making a big deal over this, but yet the biggest problem we got certainly going on around here, and I'm sure you probably do out there, more people are coming down with the flu, and everybody's trying to bury the flu issue. So that's suspicious right off the bat. And um, then, uh, you know, you you run into the issue here of uh, of, uh, the... um, you have two elements of the government to Trump's credit he is trying to downplay it i have to give him that um the the biggest thing that i run into is trying to get um trying to get across to people that there is an ulterior you know an al- an alternative way to take care of yourself in this whole Brian personally i'm not worried about it because i i supplement my diet to make sure i have the um essential nutrients that i need uh and, I mean, that's not to say I couldn't come down with something a little bit, but you'll just fight it easier if your body has the proper... I guess the best way I always try to get it across to people is like running a car. If, you're, if your body, you know, if you're receiving, you know, inferior food with inferior nutrients, you ain't going to go very far, just like if you take a car and you give it bad gas, it ain't going to run very good. And I'm just simply saying that if you take care of yourself, if you, um, you know, it, during this time of year, I always... I always supplement myself with vitamin D among other things uh, uh vitamin C selenium that kind of thing um, I, everybody else around me is coming down with the flu and everything else and um you know i'm just i'm not letting it bother me i 'm just getting out doing what i want to do
0: well see i'm I'm grateful that not only do I work from home but i'm also a little bit of an introvert so i i wasn 't planning on going out to large gatherings anyway, so this is kind of like cool. You know, I have an excuse not to not to go out and be more sociable.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the big thing, the and I don't like large gatherings either, but it doesn't have anything to do with this. It's just like I don't like to be in large throngs of people because, you know, you get some crazies in a group, and the first thing you know, then there sometimes can be problems. But uh, basically, the situation here, as far as I'm concerned, I'm more worried about the lemmings out there that are taking this seriously and doing things like, hoarding stuff out of grocery stores. The big thing, I uh, we were up uh, eating breakfast this morning, and I was talking to a couple of guys up there when I was having breakfast at one of the coffee shops here, and and the conversation came up about toilet paper, and I said, yeah, I said, it's almost like these people by hoarding toilet paper out of stores think that toilet paper is going to keep them from getting the virus or something. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid. The whole thing is stupid when in reality... You ought to have some stuff to kind of get by in the first place. But, you know, the, the, I think the thing that worries me more than anything else, I'm not as worried about the virus as I am the, the clueless people that just believe everything they hear off the mainstream media.
0: Well, and there's there's a balancing act that I think has to come into play here, and that is, on the one hand, I, I too, want to be skeptical of any of the official pronouncements just because it's it's so like politicians and bureaucrats to take advantage of when people are unsettled or fearful on the other hand, I think that, uh, you know, there, there could be some legitimate concerns here. I don't want to just entirely poo-poo it and run around, with, ah, you can't believe anything, you know. Uh, so there's a balance I want to strike between, okay, what can I do? You mentioned, you know, I can bolster my own immune system. I can wash my hands, keep my finger out of my nose and all that kind of stuff. But more than anything, I, I just, I hope people will back away from the fear because it just seems there's so much fear driving this right now
1: well i'll leave you with um what i've what i've really after watching all this what i've kind of come to the i've already told you the first thing the other thing is those that are most likely to get it are those that are in uh like here they've locked down our nursing homes now i don't blame them for that but i don't blame them for that because not necessarily because of the coronavirus but the flu stuff that's going on as well right um If you have kids in daycare or in the the public school system, you're going to be more apt to pick something up, whatever it is, from kids being in the school system, particularly the little ones that have a tendency to stick their fingers in places where they don't belong and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you can't always guarantee hygiene out of them, although you try to teach them, but you can't always guarantee it. But those that have kids in in the schools, you know, they'll come home and I'm sure you'll have, like, here, Mom, have a present of virus or something, you know. <laughs> and yeah, well. that's the biggest concern, because everybody I know that have kids in the schools or have grandkids or something like that, first thing you know, they're all down sick, you know.
0: Yeah, my, my wife is a public school teacher, and so she has, I think, roughly 200 kids, maybe a few more, come through her classroom on any given day. And that's, that's a major concern to me, because, you know, somebody's always got some bug. Now, she's pretty healthy, but, like you say, sometimes those bugs can, uh, can travel home with, the, with, you know, the teachers or the faculty or the, the students themselves. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I uh, appreciate you. Thanks for weighing in on this, Sam.
1: Yeah, just take care of yourself. And I think well, if you're healthy, you'll come through this just fine. If you're a person that has, um, that has uh, pre-existing conditions or something like that, yeah, you might have a little something to be concerned about then. So, anyway, that's enough for me. Hey,
0: okay, thanks so much for the call. I think I'm going to have to start Andy calls with and good health to you my friends. I don't know, maybe that sounds too formal or even just corny, but it's definitely this has been such an interesting year. I mean, it started out with what, uh, January 3rd, the assassination of uh, that Iranian general Soleimani, which, you know, I think rightly put a lot of people on whoa, alert is uh, is World War 3 about to kick off. And since then it's just been one thing after another. And this uh, this pandemic, which I guess it was just declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization just uh, a, f- a few hours ago, now is, uh, is taking center stage. I don't intend to change much about how I live my life, but uh, I will say my alertness level is a couple of notches above where it was this time yesterday. Back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for taking my car- call, Brian. I appreciate it.
0: So what's your take on all this, Ray?
2: Well, well, you know, I'm more of a philosopher, and I try to be, you know, um, more rational. And, and I, I think instead of all this fear and everything, what, what's the opposite of fear? It's, it's faith, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I would rather act out of faith and reason than out of fear. And, and you know, I, I know I love science. You know, uh, but at the same time, science kind of pooh-poohs religion, you know, and talks about a lot of its superstition. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people are living without faith, and faith is a power. You know, I think hope and belief is a power. You know, and, and when we—the it, it the only trouble is it takes time to develop these powers within us. You know, it, it takes years, you know, of, of practice to develop faith to where instead of reacting in fear, that we act, we've created a habit of, of acting in faith.
0: No, I, I hear you. And and I think that the thing that drives a lot of this fear isn't that uh, well people are weak of character, I think it's the unknown, right? Fear, fear is very closely connected to things that we don't know or don't understand, and, and I'm right there. There's a lot I don't know or understand about, uh, you know, viruses, how they move through the population, how dangerous it may or may not be. But I'm with you, Ray. Faith is, I think, a much better approach than simply, I don't know, running around with our arms in the air screaming.
2: And I I like that, you know, the definition of faith, that it's the motivating cause of all action. Yeah. You you know, so so we need to be properly motivated. You know, we can't can't just act on our basic, um, you know, Fall, fall in um, instinct.
0: Gotcha. Ray, thanks for the call. We'll be back after this break. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I have a story to share with you, and this is one. If you're on blood pressure medication, can I just suggest maybe have an extra dose standing by? If there's somewhere comfortable to sit, you might want to sit down because I, when, I, when you hear what I'm about to tell you, it, it should spike your blood pressure, assuming that you have a conscience. All right, you ready for this? We are all safer. yes, now that Sam Girard has been sentenced to six years in federal prison. Six years in prison. Oh, his crime? Well, he was uh, he was making herbal salve without the king's permission. Sam is a, is a uh, an Amish farmer from Kentucky, and also he has to pay $1,300 in court costs. He has to pay $14,000 in restitution to his victims. The problem is he was making a product which was not approved by the FDA. Now, now let's give you some background here. He was making a, an herbal salve. And he was trying to keep up with the FDA's regulations, but the FDA, as uh, with other regulatory agencies, can make up its own rules. And uh, he, they just they kept moving the goalposts on this man. And uh, because of this, he was dragged into court. And there was something he said in court. This is the the quote from from his courtroom: "Is uh, I do not consent." And of course, uh, Your Honor does not like to hear those words. And uh, really threw the book at him. So here's an account from the courtroom that says it comes with a disclaimer. It says this account is based on hastily scribbled notes without benefit of legal training because no recording devices were allowed in the courtroom. So hopefully there are no substantive errors. And it says after a few brief opening remarks, judge Danny Reeves described the sentencing procedure. It is not a simple or straightforward procedure. It seemed deliberately complicated which in the federal government domain can also be interpreted as providing places to hide abuse of power while maintaining the illusion of following procedures. Judges have enormous latitude in sentencing, and the sentencing guidelines include a convoluted calculation, and the various counts are apparently grouped by class. So Sam Girard had apparently five classes for each class. The points are total The author here says, I've seen people play Dungeons & Dragons. The point system seems similar. For example, counts 4 through 11, the counts for misbranded drugs, were grouped into a class. Roll the dice to get a base of 18 points, then add plus 2 for the number of violations. Plus 2 for prior convictions, the Missouri ruling against Sam. Plus 2 for sophisticated means, and plus 2 for obstruction of justice to get a total of 26 points. And that total essentially overrode the lesser totals in the other classes and was used to determine sentencing. So despite the procedural detail, the assignment of points seemed to be sufficiently arbitrary that almost any outcome could be produced. The sentencing guidelines called for 63 to 78 months in prison, one to three years of supervised release after prison, and $25,000 to $250,000 in fines. Now, they gave this, this farmer, and he's an elderly guy, the opportunity to explain why the court should be lenient in sentencing, but his only reply was, I do not consent. That's where the federal prosecutor, Kate Smith, stepped up and was given an opportunity to explain why the state wants a harsh sentence, and she didn't pass on the opportunity. She asked for a fine of $25,000 as well as jail time, specifically citing Sam's, quote, sovereign citizen claims and his refusal to admit guilt. The judge made similar comments throughout the sentencing. The judge then stated there have been a lot of incorrect statements made about this case. He said it's not about Sav, it's about refusing to follow the law, misbranding, interstate commerce, jury tampering. There have been some wild cases or claims rather, during the case. The judge said that Sam refused to listen to anyone but himself and others who have been giving him advice, bad advice. The judge said the case is not about Big Pharma. He then called Sam obstinate and accused him of continuous and blatant disregard for the rule of law. Now, of course, the law he was referring to is actually some rules that were written by unelected bureaucrats at the FDA that nonetheless are enforced as if they were laws enacted by our elected legislators. This administrative law is thousands of pages and it's enforced in a completely arbitrary manner. Now, what you need to know is that Sam had repeatedly tried to obey the rules the FDA were forcing upon him. But it was never good enough. The FDA kept telling him, you're in violation of new rules. Seeing the futility in this, Sam invited them to make suggestions that were acceptable to them and was told that it's not the FDA's job to design his labeling for him. It was his responsibility to comply with the law, a.k.a. their secret rules that keep changing. It was an impossible situation for Sam. The judge then passed sentence on Sam, six years in federal prison, three years supervised release, no ownership of firearms, no manufacturing or selling products regulated by the FDA, $1,300, that's $100 per count, in what are essentially court costs, $14,239.08 in restitution to be paid immediately to Sam's, quote, victims. The judge did not impose any fine as requested by the federal prosecutor, stating he believed a fine would impose an undue hardship on Sam's family. How magnanimous. Wow. A heart of gold, that judge has. The judge also did not order any court-mandated drug testing while Sam is on supervised release. The judge stated that deterrence is a difficult matter in this case because the defendant has demonstrated that he refuses to abide by the law. The judge ordered the court clerk to file an automatic appeal on Sam's behalf at the 14-day deadline if Sam hasn't filed the form himself, recognizing that Sam has had no legal representation and probably wouldn't know how to file the form. He also had the court clerk provide the written instructions and read the explanation of the appeals process and filing requirements to Sam. And he asked Sam if he understood, and Sam said that he does not consent. Michael Fox, the public defender, seemingly without any direction from Sam, asked the judge if he could request that Sam serve his sentence at the Federal Corrections Facility in Ashland, Kentucky. The judge said that he would need to know if this was Sam's desire before he could make such a recommendation. He asked Sam, and Sam said that he does not consent. So Sam will probably do his time at a medium-security facility someplace like Texas. Presumably prisoners are sent wherever there is room, but there are theories that prisoners are placed far from home to discourage visitation from family and friends. The the writer here, and I'm sorry, I don't know who the writer is, the, the transcriber, says, I later learned that the Ashland facility, actually in the suburb of Summit, is a minimum security facility known as the camp where they don't bother to lock the doors. Now, some observations and commentary. The author here says this restitution is one of the most perverse aspects of this case. It was clear from their testimony that Sam's suppliers, wholesale distributors, and customers all loved Sam and his products. They felt clearly victimized by an out-of-control federal government that was interfering in their ability to trade with Sam. And they were very upset at being compelled to be the FDA's hostile witnesses to testify against Sam. Their stress at this compelled testimony was palpable. It was like watching a mother forced to lie and implicate her husband in a crime he didn't commit so the state thugs would stop torturing her daughter. And now those coerced testimonies are being used to add a sense of legitimacy to this kangaroo court with the appearance that the court is protecting some actual victims of some real crime by securing restitution for them, even though the actual victims or the only victims in this case were victimized by various federal agents. During the trial... One of Sam's suppliers became visibly perturbed by the questioning designed to coerce answers for the prosecutor, and he departed from the question-and-answer format. He started railing against the entire process that forced him to appear in the court. The hostile witness became a very hostile witness and was summarily dismissed with no further questions. Another hostile witness, Mrs. Miller, a young Amish woman from out of state and the proprietor of a dry goods store, appeared so distraught. But the writer says that they were concerned that she was going to suffer a nervous breakdown on the witness stand. The prosecutor had deliberately put her in a position where she was forced to either lie about the facts or tell the factual truth, knowing it would create such a false impression that it was tantamount to a lie. Any competent cross-examination would have allowed these witnesses to testify on Sam's behalf, as they obviously wanted to do. It was clear that these people considered Sam to be their friend, and they couldn't believe the federal government was forcing them to testify against Sam. These coerced testimonies were brutal to the point of being inhumane. They were very difficult to watch. These are the people the court is now claiming are Sam's victims. Having seen their forced testimony and the internal struggles playing across their faces, the writer says, I think to a person they would identify the federal government as their tormentor. They all felt sympathy for Sam. He says, I can't imagine any of them seeing themselves as Sam's victim. The prosecutor and the judge know these witnesses are Sam's friend, and the depiction of them as Sam's victim is a, victims rather is a bizarre and blatant fraud. As much as the judge tried to appear as if the sentencing guidelines dictated the sentence, and he was some sort of unbiased arbiter, it seems likely that if not for the significant public attention drawn to this case, Sam would have received a far harsher sentence. Hopefully that can provide some comfort to a few people. So let me just pause here for a moment. We're going to break here. But if they could show that someone had actually been harmed by his salves, that would be one thing. And he would rightly owe restitution to those people. If, on the other hand... Sam was running afoul of bureaucratic rules that changed incessantly and that he was told they would not state to him clearly. It was his duty to find out what all those bureaucratic rules were. Wouldn't you think that an injustice was taking place? For that matter, if you were on the jury, wouldn't you find it hard to vote to convict? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you the story of Sam Gerard, an elderly Amish farmer in Kentucky who just received a six-year prison sentence as well as a bunch of other penalties. His crime? Selling an herbal salve that uh, apparently he could not uh, get in, in coordination with the FDA's labeling requirements. The article here says that uh, the writer says, I would concur with the judge when he stated this case really wasn't about Salve. He says, I'd probably agree it wasn't about Big Pharma, at least not directly. The case was about Sam not doing what he was told. It was about power and authority. Sam's crime was that he strongly believed that he had the right to make and sell herbal remedies. And these transactions should be regulated by market interactions between himself and his customers, not the federal government. And the writer asks this question, how can the Food and Drug Administration regulate his products when they are neither food nor drugs? Unfortunately, that's now a dangerously naive belief. The judge and prosecutor have repeatedly leveled allegations that amount to he was told not to do this, and he did it anyway. He did not respect the state's authority. If the state claims the authority to regulate your activities, then you have no right of refusal. And they stated this as if it was an obvious and incontrovertible fact. This trial was a clash of cultures, with Sam near the extreme limit of the Amish beliefs in individual liberty, liberty rather, and self determination, subject only to their religious beliefs, and the federal judge and prosecutor near the extreme limit of authoritarian state power. The writer says it was difficult to watch these proceedings without concluding that these two parties had such divergent beliefs that they were unable to communicate beyond the most rudimentary ideas. Any complex concepts had no common understanding as a basis for communication. They talked past each other. Sam insisted that he hadn't harmed anyone. The state argued that Sam hadn't followed their rules. There seemed to be two separate trials occurring in the same space, each orthogonal to the other, never intersecting nor influencing the other. Now, the writer says as a court observer, the experience would be similar to going to a basketball game where one team is playing tiddlywinks and the other team is weaving traditional Chilean baskets. It didn't make any sense, so it's no surprise that justice wasn't served. From a practical standpoint, the writer says, yes, Sam should have availed himself fully of the public defender, Michael Fox. Sam had insisted that he wanted to defend himself, but Mr. Fox became so incensed by the blatant lies of the prosecutor's first witness that he asked Sam if he'd like for him to cross-examine the witness, and Sam agreed. Despite not being able to prepare, Mr. Fox extemporaneously demolished the witness, proving that he had perjured himself at least twice in his brief testimony. The prosecutor objected to the cross-examination. Apparently she had been promised that she could try her case against an elderly Amish farmer, and Sam, receiving an actual legal defense, must have seemed very unfair to her. The judge ruled that Sam could not employ a hybrid defense, He'd need to choose whether he'd employ the public defender or whether he'd defend himself. Sam chose to defend himself and sealed his fate. Sam's defense consisted of nothing but asking witnesses if anyone was harmed by his products, and a rambling closing statement with the only salient point being that, once again, nobody was harmed by his products. While an injured party would certainly be the central issue in a common law case, It was completely irrelevant to the various didn't follow the the rules counts that Sam was facing. It would be understandable to refuse to admit guilt and try to make a point by articulating an argument in favor of individual liberty. It wouldn't succeed in court, but it might advance a liberty agenda on a broader scale. But that's not what Sam did. He offered no defense at all and placed his faith in a divinely just outcome. As a result, Sam received a six-year sentence and will probably serve five years and a few months of that sentence in a federal prison. Now, the point here is this is a real American tragedy. The writer says it must have been very frustrating for the defender, or the public defender, Mr. Fox, to sit next to Sam and suffer through that slow motion train wreck of a trial, knowing the inevitable outcome and being unable to convince Sam to do any of the things he should do to help himself. The night before the sentencing, there was a rumor that the prosecutor had offered Sam a plea deal involving a $25,000 fine with no time in prison other than the six months he's already served in the Fayette County Detention Center. But this rumor made no sense at all. Plea deals are not offered after a jury renders a guilty verdict on all 13 counts. Nevertheless, there were assurances that the Girard family had this plea deal in writing. This rumor originated with a friend of the family who apparently had been visiting when Sam called from the jail. If so, Sam and his family may have been expecting Sam to walk out of court a free man at the sentencing. That's a demonstration of how confused and strange the communications have been. Perhaps the sentencing guidelines were misread as a plea bargain offer, after a guilty verdict. Oddly, after offering essentially no defense throughout the trial, Sam attempted a version of the sovereign man defense at his sentencing hearing. All he would say in answer to any question put to him was, I do not consent, and at one point, I am a living man, and I am not the defendant. So not, not recognizing the court's jurisdiction has probably temporarily stymied some courts when they don't know how to proceed with such a fundamentally uncooperative defendant. But the writer says, I don't think it's a winning strategy in the long term. It was an odd, definitely counterproductive closing gambit at Sam's sentencing hearing. The judge and prosecutor repeatedly referred to the fact that Sam refused to admit his guilt. The notion of the defendant confessing his sins and begging for leniency evokes images of the Spanish Inquisition. Now, old man, you are hereby accused of heresy on three counts. Heresy by thought, heresy by word, heresy by deed, and heresy by action. Four counts. Do you confess? Well, Sam refused to recant and beg for mercy. So he was judged and sentenced a heretic, accordingly. Any protestation of your innocence will be counted against you. Now, that part is Orwellian. The state needed to know that they'd not not merely coerced Sam into falsely admitting his guilt, but to actually believe in his own guilt. The judge and prosecutor were very upset that they had gone to the trouble of arranging a kangaroo court, and the defendant wasn't convinced of his wrongdoing. American courts are probably not accustomed to defendants with such a strong internal sense of right and wrong. For most Americans living in a country where we inadvertently commit three felonies a day, guilt and innocence are much more relativistic. The judge and prosecution were careful to limit Sam's ability to appeal, but it does seem that there may be cause for appeal based on the judge's ruling that Sam couldn't employ a hybrid defense. Defending himself at times while allowing the public defender to cross-examine witnesses. Even though the judge made it clear repeatedly that choosing to defend yourself cannot be used later to claim that you were inadequately defended, even a cursory glance at the court transcript would show without any doubt that Sam had essentially no offense no defense rather throughout the trial the entire sentencing hearing was a spectacle both inside and outside the courthouse now this is reminiscent of what we saw with the Bundys. the department of homeland security vehicles and personnel stationed outside presumably to quell any amish domestic terrorism or armed insurrection the bomb sniffing dog used to sniff out any possible explosives in the raised flower planter in the plaza in front of the district court Fayette County Sheriff Kathy Witt was outside watching along with three deputies and a German shepherd and the usual gaggle of U.S. Marshals peering out of the doors of the federal courthouse at the peaceful crowd of protesters outside. There were 11 presumably armed security agents in the tiny courtroom. In other words, lots of tax dollars spent for this show of force. Meanwhile, security theater was alive and well. Everyone entering the federal courthouse was herded through a metal detector deprived of cameras, tape recorders, and cell phones but an aluminum cane that that easily could contain a hidden sword or a single-shot rifle or shotgun was passed around the metal detector. Everyone had to show a government-issued photo ID to enter, except the Amish. And the writer says, I asked how security is enhanced by forcing some people to show ID but not others. And I was told the Amish don't have to usually have a photo ID, so I kind of missed the point. I tried again and was told in a very authoritarian voice that it was already explained to me that if I didn't like it, I could leave. And at this point, the author says, I gave up trying to ask my question that was intended to cause some introspection or actual thought as we seem to be approaching the point where I'm going to be face down on the floor and handcuffed. Cue that Lee Greenwood song about being glad to be an American where at least I know I'm free. Now look, it may seem that uh, this this is so far removed from you because, after all, it's not you. It's not somebody you know that you know, unless you're good friends with you know the Amish of this particular region of the U.S. It's easy to shrug this off as, well, you know, you've got to follow the rules and don't break the law, and they'll, then they'll leave you alone. But that's not the case. By all indications, this guy was a peaceful individual who his trouble only began not when he harmed somebody, but when some bureaucrat, when he caught their eye and they decided to focus all of their bureaucratic authority upon bringing him into compliance. Now clearly he made some mistakes in defending himself but that doesn't back up the the idea that he should never have been in that courtroom in the first place. He, He shouldn't have been there. It never should have been a federal case. I'm sad to see injustices like this done And to me, it just strengthens my resolve that the call for jury duty is a call to stand up and prevent things like this happening. Your mileage may vary, but I know that it just, this firms up my resolve.